So did you know that there's lab mice that have been genetically engineered basically to have sickle cell disease? We have been talking to Professor Louis L. Sue, MD, PhD, professor at University of Illinois at Chicago. What does a pediatric hematology oncology doctor do? A pediatric hematology oncology uh, doctor is trying to take care of children with blood diseases and cancer. Uh, for me, my studies had started off with chemical engineering, which led to some scientific understanding and uh, engineering type experience with how flow happens and how pumps work and how things get transported, chemical transport. And this led to a fascination with blood, which is a very complex fluid. And so then I was heading toward either studying blood, which is hematology, or cardiology, which is studying the heart. And it turns out that hematology was more interesting. But then as I was going on through training, I found that uh, in the lab, there was all this information, all this knowledge about sickle cell disease, about all the different processes of how the red blood cell was abnormal and how the blood vessel was having problems. Uh, but then that wasn't getting moved to where it would be useful. And so we go around the corner from the lab or down the hall at University of Rochester, and there was still children suffering with 10 out of 10 pain, severe, severe pain. And the treatments being used had not changed in 30, 50 years. So I was trying to really set up my career to bring some of these things from lab to clinical use. Uh, and for me, it was first doing <laughs> mathematical models, computer models. Uh, by the way, the time that I was doing computer models was in the 19, early 1990, uh, late 1980s. And so a computer model was done with a computer the size of a building. Uh, and it would take 10 hours to run. And it was with um, cards, magnetic and punch cards. Uh, very, very old computers, that kind of computing power that now is probably in my phone. Um, but math models first about oxygen transport and then about mouse models. So did you know that there's lab mice that have been genetically engineered basically to have sickle cell disease? And so we use those mice to study different ways that the lungs or the heart have problems and try to understand how those are happening in a very controlled setting uh, and then test different treatments for those uh, because the mice are volunteering for all these treatments. Um, but you could do studies with a bunch of different treatments in the mice before bringing it to people. So at least you have some idea whether it's likely to work, whether it's likely to be safe. Of course, you never really know until the first brave people volunteer for a clinical trial but it helps to at least have some idea that's been tested in some system before that. Um, and then went on in my career to do more clinical trial, clinical research, uh, where people, like I said, bravely volunteered for different studies to try to help sickle cell disease advance. And enough people volunteered for these that we did have spectacular progress over the last 
15, 20 years, where there's now prevention of strokes that there wasn't before. There's ways to do bone marrow transplant uh, that didn't exist before. And then there's three, four medicines that uh, that are FDA approved. Uh, in some other countries, there's maybe only three. Um, and these are new in the field of sickle cell disease. So seeing this amount of progress, seeing things go from lab to actually now being approved and available has been tremendously gratifying. But in this latter part of my career, I'm 63 years old now, in this latter part of my career, I've also come to realize that just getting something through the clinical trials process and even to the FDA approval stage doesn't mean that it's going to be used. And so there are medicines that people are not using, even though they're available. Sometimes it's due to insurance barriers. I spend unbelievable amounts of time battling with insurance companies to get things approved. Sometimes it's lack of knowledge of the patients uh, who are suspicious, maybe. Or I have one family where <laughs> the family members are divided. And so when the children are under the care of the mother, they will receive, the kids will get the medicine that I prescribe. But when the kids are under the care of the grandmother, the grandmother refuses to give it in the same house. This was actually a conversation I had yesterday. So the kids, I know they're missing out on the medicine on the weekends when they're with the grandmother and they're getting it the other days of the week with the mother. So eventually we're going to try to get the grandmother to talk to us. Right now she doesn't even want, she doesn't trust us enough to even talk to us. Maybe she'll trust me more with this hat. I don't know. Um, so trust and information are big ongoing uh, efforts, as well as, uh, and some of the things that we're trying to do, both in the United States and in Nigeria, is work with community organizations and community health workers. In uh, Nigeria, there's community health extension workers who have a magnificent role of <laughs> trying to really spread lots of different information at an extremely local level uh, and be the front line for lots of health things, maternal child health stuff, malaria stuff, uh, HIV AIDS stuff, and then uh, monitor maybe growth and nutrition too. Uh, in the United States, community health workers could go places that I can't go. So I'm wearing a coat and a tie. By the way, my tie, I don't know if you can see it. It's has red pills on it. Yes. This tie is out of print. I have to make some more. Um, but this look doesn't really get me into some neighborhoods. <laughs> and, um, on the west side of Chicago or the south side of Chicago, I will stand out like crazy, even without the hat. But I have community health worker friends who we give the same messages and information. We might teach them some of these sort of visual aids or just convey the same information in a way that's more relatable, uh, as well as being able to know where is the community center, where's the, the key lady who can get you entrance into this group or you know the authoritative figure, if he approves of it, then the community understands that it's okay. Uh, so stuff like that we're trying to work on. And then finally, there's lack of education among different doctors and nurses where some people are stuck 
in what they learned 25 years ago, 30 years ago, before all this progress happened, or they have racial bias about sickle cell patients because they're black, or they have bias about patients because they're poor, or bias, they just don't understand pain or something like that. So we're trying to do lots and lots of healthcare provider education. And some of those are in large groups, like 600. (laughs) Some of them are going to be with skits. Some are using different online modules and things to try to spread the word as many different ways as we can. That's what happens after (laughs) the New England Journal of Medicine phase three clinical trial publication and the FDA approval. There's still work to be done. And this is called dissemination implementation science, which is extremely cool. Thank you. You know, like you said, we want to raise awareness. We want to provide information and share experiences about this condition that causes a constant shortage of red blood cells. For our listeners, please post your comments or questions at birthcenterfoundation.com. Like we've been talking about, sickle cell disease is a significant public health concern everywhere, and especially in pregnancy and in low resource situations. For example, the country of Nigeria has been reported to have the the highest burden of the disease in the world. According to estimates, Nigeria has over 100,000 babies born with sickle cell disease every year. And the majority of these births occur in low-income families. And you have talked a lot about the things that can be done in situations like this to battle the condition. But please talk one more time about pre-marriage. Young people trying to you know, get married, have babies, you know, what should they be talking about with respect to prevention of sickle cell disease in their offspring? Yeah, I think it basically starts with awareness that you actually know what your genotype is, know know what your sickle cell gene status is, but you also need to know whether there's some other gene like hemoglobin C or beta thalassemia. So just having Sickle or not is not the complete story. Uh, so there's a need for that kind of genetic awareness. And uh, and then the awareness that not every baby of a couple with sickle cell trait would have sickle cell disease. So that there is some randomness in there. Um, so it's a subtle message. Uh, it takes a little bit of understanding. So awareness really is the issue. Uh, it so happens that... Um, we're taping this now just a few days away from Global Sickle Cell Awareness Day. So June 19th has been declared Global Sickle Cell Awareness Day um, by like WHO, I think. And um, so we're trying to do shine the light for sickle cell and promoting sickle cell awareness as one of the ways to do that. There are different community groups that are trying to find ways to approach uh, adolescent young adults who are on the verge of making reproductive choices, um, make sure that they have awareness of their sickle cell status and they can think about these things that have to do with, you know, what 
dad and mom have as their different genes inside. And to know that you do have to get a test to see what's going on inside your body. And so having the sickle gene and the, and the trait uh, is something that you need to find a blood test to be able to tell. Thank you. So, you know, just talking with you, in my, my mind wanders back to a vivid memory that I still remember to this day. Uh, it is the recollection of a pregnant woman I had encountered during my time working as a triage physician in Nigeria, has struggled with sickle cell crisis, left an indelible mark on my heart. Her name was Ayo, a vibrant and resilient young woman, eagerly anticipating the arrival of her first child. Ayo arrived in the emergency room, clutching her belly and writhing in agony. The Nigerian medical staff, despite the limited resources and overwhelming patient load, they worked diligently to manage Ayo's crisis. We provided intravenous fluids, we closely monitored her vital signs, and applied warm compress to soothe her throbbing bones. It was evident that she had been through this ordeal before. And pregnancy in women with sickle cell disease, like we have talked about, is considered a high-risk condition, and it can cause increased likelihood of complications, both for the mother and for the developing fetus. And, you know, not being an OBGYN, I just want you to make a mention of, you know, what is the initial management when people come with, it looks like Ayo was having a bone pain crisis or abdominal crisis. What, what is the initial management that we should make sure as physicians, these patients have? Yeah, I would turn back the initial management. I would turn back the clock uh, to be as early as possible. We would hope that Ayo or another pregnant woman is plugged in with care. And so it should not be a pregnancy that rolls along with no medical care, no prenatal care. So getting prenatal care would be hopefully the first step before you have a pain or a problem. When there is something with pain, then it's an adaptation of what would be given for a non-pregnant person, trying to give pain medicines as soon as possible, try to uh, support and make sure that there's no, uh, look for other sickle cell complications, look for kidney problems, lung problems, infections, and stuff like that. And so doing a fairly rapid comprehensive assessment would be necessary. And so all this means that the prenatal care needs a team that you should have somebody who knows what they're doing with sickle cell, as well as somebody who knows what they're doing with high-risk obstetrics, where um, pregnancy should be monitored, things need to be done in a more medical setting than for other people who don't have sickle cell disease. So I think those would be some of the messages. And you talked about pain management, you know, sickle cell related pain crises can occur during pregnancy and it requires all kinds of pain management strategies, medications and non-pharmacological, non-medication approaches can be used to alleviate the pain and reduce the frequency and severity of the crisis. 
in one of your 2023 research articles, uh, Professor Sue, in the American Journal of Hematology, in which you were one of the authors, you talked about a simple nose spray for pain control, a fentanyl spray that could help the bone pain crisis. Can we get this spray in rural America or in Africa? And can you discuss and, you know, how can we ensure that there's not an abnormal dependence on this kind of easily used pain medications? Yeah, uh, thank you very much for that question. So the spray is called intranasal fentanyl. So fentanyl is the is the pain medicine and it's given in the nose. So it's intranasal, I-N, intranasal fentanyl. Again, remember that I'm pediatric. <laughs> and so the intranasal fentanyl has the good point that you don't have to get it by injection. It's a strong pain medicine. But the downside is that the dose given is just what you can absorb in your nose. And it turns out that that's much easier to do for a child than for an adult. So this whole study was basically a pediatric study. Intranasal fentanyl is given in emergency rooms. I think in most of the U.S. it's probably available where you have a need for some short period of pain medication for a child. But for adults, it's just hard, hard to do because you can't get enough dose in. The other downside of this intranasal fentanyl is that its duration, how long it'll last for pain relief, is pretty short. Minutes, I think. I would be surprised if it lasts half an hour. And so it is not a good permanent solution. And if we were trying to do it at home, it would be really, really hard. Uh, so this is kind of an emergency department bridging through just the getting in, getting processed, the paperwork, getting an IV, all that stuff, giving this intranasal fentanyl as a way to tide something over or to make a little bit of a dent in the pain treatment for the first few minutes. So it's very unfortunate that this is only a very, very specialized solution and the amount that we can give has not been enough for adults. In our upcoming episode... Is there a difference, bone marrow transplant, stem cell transplant, and, you know, how do these procedures help sickle cell disease? 